it's all those little things you do every day and it looks like it is a grind and you know you're mm. pushing that rock up the hill but all of a sudden if you keep doing that's where people fail they mm. stop before they get the momentum going Hey, y'all, and welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story, and it's the stories that connect us all. I'm Justin Rickliffs, founder and CEO of Guild Content, husband of Brooke, and father of five young people. And I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, who happens to be my wife as well. Hey, guys, I'm Brooke, owner of Reclaim the Home, Justin's wife and mother of five. We're so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we'll explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose. Welcome to Guild Stories. Okay, guys, so we're joined today by a man with an incredible story and more than that, a huge heart. If you've ever bought or sold a home, chances are you've encountered the Remax balloon. Remax is in more countries than any other real estate brand from a single office that opened in 1973 in Denver, Colorado. Remax has grown into a global real estate network with more than 123,000 associates in more than 100 countries and territories. Crazy. Nobody in the world sells more real estate than Remax. And our guest today was the very first Remax franchisee in 1975, which is a super fascinating story that we can't wait to tell. So, Dennis Curtin. Dennis is a region owner of Remax. He owns the Remax operations in the mid states and the Dixie region, which you'll hear all about. So, Dennis, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you both. Uh, I'm excited to be here and uh, share some ideas and stories. That's we're, awesome. We're thrilled to have you, Dennis. Um, can't wait to get to your story. But first, can you give our listeners a quick intro? Maybe where you came from, tell us a little about your family and where you call home now. Yeah, I was uh, born in St. Joe, Missouri. And when I was 10, my dad uh, moved uh, to Kansas City to take a job. And so I uh, took the family down here and uh, ended up in Gladstone, Missouri. And basically called that home all through um, high school. I went to De La Salle High School over town and uh, Rockhurst College. Nice. And so Kansas City North has been my uh, home for many, many years. Very neat. Very fun. And now uh, you're, you reside here as well. Yeah, well, I'm between. I travel a lot. Yep. So we have uh, a business down in the Virgin Islands, actually, and Kansas City. So I'm back That's and forth rough. between those two uh, quite cool. a bit. Very cool. That's awesome. So tell us, so one of the, one of the mottos that we have in our agency, we, we use this theme a lot and we say, go for it, which I think is um, it, it, apropos for this conversation. So you were the very first Remax franchisee. That's incredible. Tell us how that happened. Tell us that story. Rewind us to 1975 and, and bring us into that story. Well, I graduated from college and uh, as I said, and then, you know, trying to find my way. And um, I remember my mom said something to me and I had a friend of mine also tell me, you know, you might want to get a real estate license or something, just kind of put it on your resume. It might be something. So I did that when I was in college, not knowing I'd ever need it. Sure. And uh, so I got out of college and uh, tried to get in the stock brokerage business. And I did, uh, I was on my claim to fame. I was in the brokerage business for one day, the <laughs> company that I uh, actually went to work for, uh, was uh, shut down as a rookie uh, the very first day. And so I was out of a Literally job. Literally the first day. First day on the board of trade. Holy cow. And uh, yeah, it was, a, you may remember that name, H. Ross Perot. Oh, actually yeah. owned a company and he had merged these two companies together and our company was not the survivor. <laughs> and so I was actually out of a job immediately. So I uh, happened to call my um, friend of my mom's and he was a local builder. And I said, hey, I got this real estate license. Would you have an interesting young guy come to work for you. So I went up and interviewed with him and he said, you know, honestly, you know, we're not that big. We're 
kind of a custom home builder. Why don't you go to try to work for one of the con- traditional firms? So I literally got in my car, went down North Oak and stopped at the very first uh, company that had a real estate sign out and went in and interviewed. And uh, my manager, ultimately my manager said, well, you're kind of young. Why don't you go get your broker's license? If you do that, maybe I'll consider it. So uh, cursing under my breath, I left the door and went out, <laughs> got my broker's license, threw it on his desk and said, now will you hire me? And so I did. I went to work for that firm in 1973. And um, so how Remax came about was it was a tough time. We were a small little two office operation and we were competing with the big boys. Uh, there was an oil embargo going on, high interest rates, all mm-hmm. those kind of things. So it was tough business. And um, I read an article in the Kansas City Star about this newfound a company in Denver, Colorado called Remax. And uh, so I was fascinated. So the broker and I went out there and of course it was a father son operation I worked for. We came back all excited. The son and I did it, but the father said, no, Um, we're not going to change the name. We're not doing, doing that. So I hung around for about six more months and then I called back out there and I says, I don't know if you remember me, I came out here, but I'd be, I'd like to come out and, and buy a franchise. And the folklore in the company is, is that the owner of the company put his hand over the phone and says, does anybody know what a franchise is? <laughs> and so anyway, I went this out guy there. Wants a franchise. What do we do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this guy wants to buy a franchise. So I went out and as it turns out, uh, they were having some struggles too, as I huh. found out. But uh, long story short, I ended up buying the first franchise in Remax. That's crazy. 1975. And opened our doors in September, uh, right down North Kansas City, where the Cerner is right now. Okay. That uh, North Kansas City building, that was where we had our first office. And, and what was the appeal to you to leave the father-son operation and have a franchise? Like, what, what, why were you even open to that? What was kind of going well, on? Well, back there? then, uh, if you were a real estate business, you were basically what would they call you on a 50-50 split. The brokerage would keep 50%, mm-hmm. and then the agents would split the uh, listing commission or the sales commission 25% each. And uh, they, you know, it was a good program, particularly when you were new and brand new, because you uh, needed that support. But once you got to the point where you were fairly Doing successful, well. it was kind of lopsided. And so, uh, Mr. Linegar, who started Remax, came up with the idea that they would start treating real estate agents like doctors and you know huh. uh, lawyers, where they would come in and co-op and share overhead, but keep the bulk of the commission. So that's where the Remax system came in. We started off paying full commissions to the agents. And, but yeah, for a, in turn, a management fee and pro rata share of the overhead. And that, uh, that's how the uh, industry was really dramatically changed when uh, that concept came in. Mm. Super cool. At what point did you know we're onto something here? There's momentum going and we're doing well. Well, we started in 75 and I opened up a couple, three offices up north. And then, of course, Dave was continuing to encourage me to open more offices. He, he needed more franchise fees. So sure. He was trying to keep his doors open. And I ultimately got up to about six offices here and still trying to sell real estate and still trying to manage and wheels started coming off. And so about 1986 is when I realized we were really on to something. About 10, mm. 11 years it took mm. us to really, we woke up one day and we said, you know, we got a lot of market share. We got a lot of agents. Mm. We are starting to really have some serious momentum. So I'd say that's about the first time I kind of light bulb went on that this is going to go bigger than we ever thought. But 10 years of hard, consistent work. Yeah, I, that's why I said I was doing about five jobs. I was selling real Jeez. estate, still trying to keep my clientele. I was recruiting agents, opening offices. And in about 77 or 78 is when I, they started regionalizing the company. So they came to us and said, hey, you've been somewhat successful. Would you like to take over the state of Missouri and then mm. Arkansas and Mississippi? I think it just kind of went from there. Wow. So wow. that's... 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't encourage everybody to take on five or six <laughs> jobs, but uh, I, I got through it. That's great. So as the as the number of states grew, what what that what was that rough timeline in terms of? I mean, you said 10, 11 years before you felt, oh man, like we might be onto something. What geographically did that look like at that point? Well, by that time, I had uh, taken on Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas okay. uh, in nineteen eighty three. And again, it was just uh, everything I, I tell people today is uh, to, to, to go to the next level. Sometimes you have to take a step back mm. and it means step back in income because every, I was doing pretty well as a real estate agent. And all of a sudden I had to take a step back, give up that and then try to start trying to make money out of managing and owning these things. And mm. then I had to take a step back to open all these states. Mm. So about 86 is we already had the four states. And then uh, at that point I had a, gentleman who was one of my um, colleagues who owned some states down in the, what we call the Dixie region. And in uh, 1993, uh, we came together on terms and he wanted to move back to St. Louis. And I took over Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana, which is our, uh, our seven state area now. Wow. That's crazy. And, and the seven states, what, what does that look like in terms of number of offices, number of agents? Like how, how do you kind of view that seven state? territory? Well, in two metrics. One is uh, offices or 235 offices. Good night. And now we're at 4,035 agents. And so we crossed over that 4,000 mark this year, which uh, was last year, which was a big uh, celebration for us because it was one of those magical marks we've been looking to get to. And, uh, you know, people always ask me, what's it look like going forward? And and honestly, we've got uh, about 8% market share in terms of number of agents. So there's a lot of growth still ahead. Even mm. after all these years, there's still mm. a tremendous amount of growth. Now, clarify that for me. So 8% in your seven states, or does REMAX have 8% market uh, pretty share? Pretty much across the country. Well, the market share is a little different. So, okay. the, And that's one of the interesting things about REMAX. Uh, when we recruit somebody, they're typically seasoned. They're very much, uh, they got their own clientele. So if I uh, recruit as an agent, I might pick up, more than just one or two percent market share, I might pick up another three or four percent market share. Mm-hmm. So nationwide, we're probably around fifteen to sixteen percent of the market, but we only have eight percent of the agents Got nationwide. It. So we we're really kind of a you know outproducing our weight that's two cool. to one. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm just fascinated by these early years. You mentioned high interest rates. Um, obviously, the the work looked different. There wasn't cell phone and websites and social media like. Bring us into what what did what did it look like to build a business then? I mean, I, I just think it's a fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty antiquated when I look back compared to what work. it is today. <laughs> well, I'll give you a few couple examples. For for example, um, you got to remember when we started, this was before fax machines, so we would have to literally, if we got a contract, take get in our car and take it all the way across town to the other brokerage. In some cases, we'd have to go and pick up the key from the brokerage to be able to show the property. So there's a lot of that kind of running around, crazy. back and forth, crazy stuff. And, you know, of course, there were we, uh, North of the River, I'm pretty proud of this. We actually started the very first cell phone service, so to speak, back in the uh, uh, late 70s. We had these big briefcase phones. I had one. And did you have I, one? I had one similar. Mine yeah, was car, kind of a backpack yeah. Car well, that phone. even a predecessor before that, <laughs> wow. we had a tower that we rented up there on North Oak Traffic Way, and we had like CBs that we would. And my concept when I first started co- the company, and 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 I this sounds sexist, but it's not meant to be. Back then, it was a very male dominated sure. industry Absolutely, when yeah. I started. So my idea was would have fifteen guys like me running around just being a SWAT team. That's yeah. that was my thought. 
And to do that, we'd have to communicate. So we actually had CB type of radios. And of course, we were a bunch of yahoos. We had no idea about the <laughs> rules and regulations of the federal communications, you know. So we're stepping over the top of uh, all these truck Channels drivers. And, yeah. and it, it didn't take long, about three or four months, we got a cease, and, cease and desist letter from, <laughs> from the FCC. But that we were actually, that was a predecessor to uh, wow. cell phones. So we were kind of thinking out of the box even back then. But that would be one thing. The other thing that was just kind of crazy back then was that there was no MLS. So we couldn't even share information with other brokerages. And if you think about the MLS, the, the beauty of that is mm -hmm. if you list your property with me, it goes completely to everybody so that mm -hmm. the whole world can be exposed to it, which is better for the for the seller and the buyer. Sure. Yeah. But those were the things we were dealing with back then. What, what, what do you tell an agent today who comes in and maybe, I don't know, uh, complains or is frustrated or... Oh, there's all these other agents and there's so much com competition. Hard. Yeah, it's hard. Like, do, do you ever kind of say, well, back in my day, we walked uphill. Like, just how, how, well, do, how do you handle someone who might think what we do today is tough? Well, I always start with, even back then, I said, you know, uh, we got three, I saw a billboard the other day, 3.35% 30-year fixed rate uh, interest. And we were dealing with 18% because we had, had 21 points on top of that because we had a usury law here in Missouri. I said, so first of all, let's get that out of your head that market conditions are going to dictate your success. That's because we've all been yeah. through many, many worse conditions. Mm. Uh, and so I tell people it's about a three-year process. If you're not ready really to grind it out for three years and mm. do the grunt work and do mm. all the stuff that, you know, not cut out for may it. not want to do it forever, mm. but I'm talking about knocking on doors and, you know, the sphere, sphere of influence and, and working mm. that. Mm. A lot of people think the real estate industry and sales is easy. Oh. And in a market like we've been in, I always tell people sometimes a monkey probably could do this. But when when things tighten up and things are going to tighten up again, um, that's when you need a professional. And that's that's when you see the people really weeded out. So that's what I tell people. Just go in and do the basics and, and really just learn from the people uh, who have, have succeeded. Yeah. That's great advice. And I think there's this. Sorry, Brooke, cut, cut you off. But I think there's and, – and our business is only – three years, not even three years old. And we're still like, feels like we're, we're in, in many ways kind of butting our head up against the wall going, I think there's the, I think the green space is on the other side of this wall. Right. <laughs> and, and to hear you say, Hey, it took 10 or 11 years. And, and, and you won't ever say it cause you're way too humble, but one of the most successful business owners in Kansas city and, and even you're going, Hey man, it takes 10 or 11 or 15 or 20. Oh, it takes time effort. and effort and yeah. consistent Consistent effort. Well, I tell you, it's a compound effect. It's like mm -hmm. anything, like compounding interest, anything. It is a compound effect. It's all those little things you do every day, and it looks like it is a grind, and, you know, you're mm -hmm. pushing that rock up the hill. But all of a sudden, if you keep doing it, that's where people fail. They mm -hmm. stop before they get the momentum going. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is discouraging. There's lots of days you come going, well, there's going to be a better way. But mm -hmm. then you pick yourself up the next day, and you go, you know, let's push the, push the rock going. a little bit further. Mm -hmm. And once you get it going, that's, I can tell you, the other side of that, yeah. Bill, it's kind of fun because now you can't sit back on your laurels, but it's a heck of a lot easier now to be able to think creatively because you got business successful, you got cash flow, you got a lot of other things going for you yeah. to uh, give you that opportunity. So good. Beside the success, what else has brought you joy as it relates to your team, your company, your family, what you might do outside of work? Well, I'll start with business. I think the, uh, the thing that has given me the best joy of all is that, well, first of all, I'll, I have been blessed to be able to hire people. I guess maybe I have an innate talent to figure out people who 
who have the ability to, to, to do their, I'm not a micromanager. I think people like in that, that kind of environment, um, I expect them to do their job. If they have a problem, they come to me, but, um, and I think that approach has worked because I have many, I've had many, I've starting, they're starting to retire on me now, but I've had many 30 year employees, which in today's world is pretty hard to unheard of. So that's from a business standpoint, that's probably been my, and along the second thing is that, um, when I look back on my career, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the greatest blessing is to be able to help somebody else. And I look back now and all these agents that I've had, you know, a chance to touch, I didn't make them successful. They made themselves successful. All I did was maybe, you know, give them the idea. Give them a start. And give yeah. them a different way of looking at it. Sure. That's, that's really from neat. a personal standpoint, now that I'm a grandparent, I have to tell you, that's kind of a cool <laughs> thing. I, I, I used to laugh at all my friends, but I get it now. So uh, that's that's probably what I would say is my most successful uh, venture going on right now is these grandkids. Oh, How many do you have? I have three. I have a little 10-year-old grandson and two twin uh, five-year-old daughters, granddaughters. That's awesome. Who totally run my life. Of course. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. Um, what are maybe some leadership lessons that you've, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned before that you've written a blog and you've kind of had this kind of internal communication strategy with your, with your agents and your team. What are some of the, like, if you could distill a few, hey, and, and since 1975 to 2019, this is some of the, I, I know you couldn't distill them all, but what are maybe a couple, two, three leadership lessons that you've learned along the way? Well, I mentioned one, and, is, and that is really hire the right people and let them do it. Yeah. The second one, which is probably uh, even more important to me than anything, is that I learned early on that there isn't any job that the leader is too good to do. Mm. Meaning if you walk across a parking lot and there's trash, you pick it up. Mm. Because that's what I've learned most is that they will watch you in leadership position, you're a uh, whether it be your employees or your independent contractors, like I have so many of, uh, they're going to watch what you do, not what you say. Mm. And I have to tell you, that has been the hallmark of, you know, when it comes to mm. learning something new, mm. I don't always get it right the first time, but I'm not afraid to try to do it and some, or whatever it might be. So that would be one thing. Um, and I, you know, it's like goes without saying, you have to give them the respect and, uh, you know, pay the people for what it's worth. I, I, my leadership role, I try to put everybody on a track. And so sometimes I have to educate them mm. that their expectations are way out mm. or they're on the right uh, track together. Mm. Because false expectations is what causes a lot of problems in a marriage, in oh, yeah. family, yes. I mean, totally everything. Yeah. It all yeah. comes down to expectations. So that would be the other thing that I would say is get clarity in your own mind. Mm. And then once you have clarity in your mind, then, yeah, then yeah. you can communicate and you can see if it's a fit. Mm. So good. How about the the flip side? You, you mentioned when the momentum's rolling and the, the the rock is finally rolling down the hill. Tell us uh, if if you could a couple times when when you felt like throwing in the towel or when you felt like that rock was too heavy or you hit some major adversity. I, I'm assuming that it wasn't all roses since 1975. Well, along <laughs> with my other, no, it hasn't always been. Uh, along with my other real estate franchising side, I'm I have been investing and developing real estate for, mm. for many years. I started back mm. really just once I started getting into it, a little rental house here, a little mm. rental house there. And uh, I remember when the, we had a the 86 tax law, that was one of those monumental tax changes. And what they did is they, they w- basically wiped up the ability to write off all your losses uh, against real estate. 
and it put a lot of big time developers in mm -hmm. Kansas City under uh, all over the country. Mm. And I remember being in that situation where I wasn't a big time developer, but I had owned a couple office buildings. And uh, in the middle of the night, one of my major tenants, about 12,000 square feet, kind of a, a community college type, moved out in the middle of the night. Oh. And I remember waking up the next day going, I, I'm not going to be able to make this mortgage. I mean, it had mm. gotten to the point where when I was younger and small, uh, smaller, I'd say, well, I'll just sell more. I'll, I'll outsell. I'll just, I mean, I'll just fund it that <laughs> way. Well, I got to the point where I couldn't outsell it anymore. Uh, and that was kind of a low point in my life. Like, what have I done? Have I so I did learn a great lesson there is leverage is wonderful, but it can be awfully bad if it mm. turns against you. So mm. I've become a very conservative investor over the years. And I have, you know, my, my theory is if the world comes to, you know, goes bad tomorrow, um, Banks can be your friend or they can be your foe. Mm -hmm. And I've been on both sides of that. And so I, I always caution people to um, not be conservative to the point you don't want to take a few chances, but at the same time, don't think the world's always going to stay rosy yeah. because there's cha yeah, things change. So that was probably the, from business, that was the time where I didn't know if I could make it. But you know what I did? I just got up and started negotiating with the, my lenders and talking to people and not running away from it. You know, I, I had have them work with me and they did. Yeah. And it's just, it's amazing. If you keep talking, people will, and it's when you don't talk <laughs> and any of being in them back to relationships or anything else. It's just amazing how people, I think most people really want to help people sure. succeed. Yeah, they really do. And if there's some semblance of a trusted relationship there, they didn't want to see you fail either. Seeing you no. fail means they fail. And that's, so they're, they're probably right. with some sort of a Hey, let's Rally let's yeah. yeah they let's didn't get, really want the property back either. Right, right. <laughs> how about two thousand eight? What happened there? Like, how'd you guys kind of navigate? What the business look like? Well, Did I you take a big you, downturn? I, I, uh, this is a funny story. I I, I travel a lot, and I'm busy, and I'm not out in the trenches selling real estate anymore. And I remember, uh, in real estate, you have to get your license renewed, and you have to have continuing education. And I remember being in the back of the room, and all my goal was is just to get through the class. Check sign it off, off the, the paper list. and just get my, you know, for the next two years. And I've had my head down in the USA Today, and all of a sudden I have paying attention to the uh, instructor. There's no test, so I knew I just had to get through that. And I remember them saying something like, how many of you been involved with a, um, a liar's loan? Mm. And I was, That's the darndest question I've ever heard. Or, you mean, how many of you been involved with uh, a loan that, People really couldn't qualify for, but, you know, there's no doc loan. You know, there's no documentation. You know, you can say whatever you want to make. And I popped my head up, and I'd say three-quarters of the room raised their hand. Wow. I'm going, what is going on? Am I been living under a rock or what? Well, that was my first little bell that went off my head going, something's not right here. Mm. And it was probably about six months before the crash. So I can't tell you I predicted it, but I smelled it. Mm. <laughs> and mm. so when it finally hit... I was a little bit prepared from my own company because I had, you know, tightened down the hatches a little bit. And, but what I didn't realize, I also had a business in Ireland. I will tell you about that. And uh, that was devastating because over there, most people don't realize that that whole meltdown started in Iceland and it started in, in Ireland, those little count, because they had mm. been so over leveraged. Mm. And we had about 75 franchises over there, uh, my wife and I did. And we would get calls at three in the morning, which would be nine o'clock over there saying the bank has called our notes due. We can't make our payments. And oh. literally we saw the meltdown. It was devastating and heartbreaking. Mm. People who'd been in business 35 years uh, having their notes called due. Mm. So I had that as a, 
a prelude to what was happening in the States too. So I had a couple of a little bit of a head start on what was happening. Um, but I don't think anybody can say they ever saw that coming. You talked about some consistent efforts for these 10, 11 years. You're just working, working, working five jobs hard. What, what can you give our listeners? What do you do consistently daily just to continue moving forward? What behaviors have you taken along the way to, to propel yourself to continue growing? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what people ask me. I get this all the time. They'll mm-hmm. say, how do you, you seem like you got so much going on. How do you do this? And what I have found is that it's, it's a discipline. If it gets just like this podcast, you know, unless I was sick on my deathbed or something, mm. it was going to happen today mm. because it got into my day timer. Mm. And, and most people what I've learned is that they'll, they'll say they're going to, you know, do things and let's get together. But if we say we're going to get together, I will put it down even if it's six months from now. And so people will laugh at me sometimes. Well, how far out do you do your calendar? I said, this is as far out as we need to. There's That's things awesome. that I've already got down in 2022. It's in there. Now, it might get changed between now and then. So I would say the first thing is having that discipline mm. to be able to, and then first get it down, and then secondly, review it. I review it in the morning, I review it at night, and I check it through the day just to make sure. I, and mm. I tell, I joke, if it doesn't get down, it's probably not going to happen. If it gets down, mm. it's going to get happened. So having a system, and it, it's, it's so basic, but having the system that actually, whether it's in a, I call it still the old day timer, but you know around now it's in our phones. It's in our phones yeah. everywhere yeah. it goes. Yeah. Having something that you're going to uh, allocate. I will tell you a mistake I made, and this is a really great lesson, I, and it might be interesting to your uh, listeners. So when I was younger, I'd have a you know little diary where I'd write it in, and, and, but my problem was I never stuck to the, the time frame. And the time frame would, you know, we'd get to talking, I'd mm-hmm. have a good listing presentation, and next thing you know, mm-hmm. I'd be always constantly. And so I had a reputation early on in my sales career of always being 15 minutes late. Mm-hmm. And so, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. (laughs) And so this is a great story because it changed my life. And so I remember, and I needed this deal. And it was a gentleman, he was, I was probably, you know, maybe 30 at the time. And he was probably in his sixties. And so I got up there and I'm running and I wanted this listing. Mm -hmm. It was up there at Gladstone. And, um, he came in, he's very polite. He welcomed me and I'm getting ready to go on. I'm sorry. I went through my apologies for being late. And I started going into the, asking questions and he just shut his 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 portfolio book that he was going to take notes in and says mr curtin i can see that you uh, must be a very very busy man and the fact that you couldn't be here on time tells me that you're probably too busy to handle this property so Whoa. i appreciate your effort thank you and he saw me to the door mm. i mean this was thousands of dollars of a commission that went out because I was 15 minutes late and he did it politely, but he, he did it firmly enough that, you know, he was, he he sent me the greatest message that, you know, at all costs, you know, keep respect of time of somebody else's time. I wonder if he knows that. I doubt it. I doubt it. But you know what? (laughs) I give him a lot of credit anonymously. (laughs) (laughs) I told him many times. So, but, uh, so maybe he is getting credit, but I mean, those are the little things that you we do take for granted. I mean, you ask about different things. Um, one other thing that I do is I'm, uh, I think I've become kind of a master at it, is I constantly look for things that I can eliminate mm. in my office and in my personal life, meaning little rituals, little things, time killers, mm. stuff that feels good. But, you know, at the end of the day, you go, it wasn't necessary. Productive. Really Give us an example. Productive. What would that be? What would something be that you've eliminated? Um, well, one of the things, <laughs> so one of the things that I used to do is 
it's it's how do I say this? It's a two-edged sword. So you gotta be careful. I try to get as many breakfast in, and I try to get as mm. many lunches in as possible. Mm. What I found, because you know, that's people have to eat. Yeah. And I like to eat, and so I mean, you're it's saying easy. with others, you like to do I, meat. Yeah, that's how I like things. to do, you know meat for yeah. lunch, and I think yeah. we've done that, yeah. Justin. So yeah. it's the breakfast or lunch. And so what I have done though, uh, more recently, is I started looking at that fact that these were going to, you know hour and a half, you know, some, sometimes mm-hmm. it'll go as much as two hours because people want to talk. And I mean, you, you have to be polite and you want to be, you know, cordial, but sometimes you know, if you're trying to cram a lot of stuff in, which let's go. we yeah. all are, <laughs> let's get to the point, right? Yeah. So now I have adjusted where I'll meet them for a coffee. I'll meet them at Panera's, you know, mm-hmm. something that isn't going to take a long time. We order, we eat, and we're out of there in 30 or 40 minutes. And I'll tell you what, that, that saves 30, 40 minutes, two or three times a day. Smart. It all adds up. That's just the kind of, I'm talking about the little, no one knows it but me. Yeah. But I know that, you know, instead of going to a nice restaurant, sitting down, doing the whole drill, and it's an hour and a half, I can get it done in 30 or 40 minutes now yeah. and still have that conversation. It's so and, good. And, you know, it's one of those environments that you do eat, but you don't want to sit there and, you know, lounge the whole day. Totally, you know? totally. Yeah. Have a, a three cocktail lunch or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how do you, I'm fascinated by your, your daytimer conversation. I think, I I think it's amazing how thoughtful you are about your life, your calendar, what you do. You're very, it seems like you're very self-aware. Well, I think we are. Tamara and I are both very efficient at this. And and, and it must be unusual because I can't tell you how many times, whether it's Mm. a construction worker on the job site notices, you know, you, you people observe you, as I told you before, they're observing you all the time. We get that all. How do you get all this stuff in? They Mm. must just, now sometimes maybe they, they fantasize it's more than what it is because, you know, but I'm pretty polite, but curt, saying, "Okay, I, I, we've got ten Gotta minutes. Roll. I have yeah. to go on." You know, I let them know up the expectations. So that's what I tried to do. And then um, I, where I'm not as good, probably, is I, I don't turn it completely off at five o'clock. When, uh, now that we have these cell phones and these devices, yeah. but I have become pretty, uh, with the help of my wife, diligent about. Okay, it's dinner time. It's got to be put away. Yes, yeah. there's there's starting time some yep. some sort of uh, you know. You have to have some sort of boundaries, boundaries there. Yeah. Because in this business, I'm sure in your business, in the 24-7 world, there are no boundaries anymore. Yeah. People Midnight, will call night, you yeah. and text you at yep. any time, you know? Yeah. And they expect immediate response. That's the other thing. Right, right. That's great. Um, let, let's shift a little bit of gears and talk about success. Um, as you've grown in your influence, your position, both kind of in the community, but also in the business world, what maybe matters to you, to, to Dennis today versus Dennis in 1973. Like, how have you kind of defined success today? Or how do you define success today? Well, I mean, I think you have to be successful personally in all aspects of your life. You know, I mean, people will sometimes say, well, you put, you're too interested or you put too much focus on, on say, money Mm. or finances. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that that's right. If it's all, if it's, if it's all of anything, it's too much, Mm. but you have to, you know, we have some, I know some wonderful people who do a lot of good, but constantly broke. They're not being able to take care of their families properly. So, you know, success to me is being able to not only just be financially successful, but to have, have good health. I mean, the mm. things that you have to do to, mm. you know, without good health doesn't matter. Yeah. And then the other thing, relationships, you know, how many people do you know? And I know that have messed up their relationships with, with their families or their kids or whatever. So relationships are very important. Mm. And then of course, just the mental, you know, having a good mental outlook yeah. and uh, surrounding yourself with people that feed that 
mental outlook. So I think from a holistic sense, to me, that's the success, I think, of a really successful person is, is to hack, is to put all those areas in balance. So good. T- tell us, I mean, we, we've, we're recording this podcast, not super early, but in the morning. And you, you rolled into our appointment on time. And you'd said, yeah, got my work at it. Like, what, what, what's physical health look like to you today in terms of, I mean, you're a fit guy, you're, but you're not 28 anymore, right? So what's your physical kind of routine or regimen look well, like? I'm, I'm, I, I tell you what's been interesting for me, and just moved into a new decade here last month, is that what happens is uh, you can get away with the same old, same old for a long time. Mm. And when you're 30, you get away with a lot. 40, you notice a few things, and then you're 50, you go, wow, maybe I got to adjust. Mm. It's a constant adjustment. So, you know, walking has always been a big part mm. of my life. And uh, now, but I've learning, you know, walking is fine, but, you know, you probably know I still like a glass of good wine from oh, time yeah. to time. And that doesn't go off like it used to, even with walking. So now, the phase I'm in now is in the Pilates. Cool. And into the stretching all those things that you have to do because I find as you get older, you do have to modify your workouts. I mean, I have good friends mm-hmm. of mine who are in their 50s and 60s still trying to play tennis like they're in their 20s, and they're, and they're constantly at the doctor. I mean, they're <laughs> constantly hurting, you know, and your body changes. Yeah, that's so right. anyway, that's – so we got up this morning. I got up about uh, 5 this morning and uh, did some meditation. I do like to do that and just kind of get – think about my day, look at my calendar. Yeah. And then I uh, had uh, my – Workout is about a quarter to seven, and we had an hour on the Pilates machine and all that, and then uh, ran home and showered and came up here. Actually, I was about five minutes late because of the of the traffic that I had to come into here, but uh, that's that's that on time for Justin. Yeah, that that's a five minutes late. You're great, man. That's way early. Okay, I, and my timing was <laughs> off by five minutes today. That's great. Um, I, I'm gonna hijack it real quick because you, you made me think of something. So Brooke and I are newbies, but we're we're getting into meditation. Tell us your meditation kind of practice or story like how'd you get into it and what's it look well, like well i today? mean what i call meditation is is it it's really one word for me and it's gratitude and if you can just stay in gratitude of all the things mm. that are happening in your life and all the blessings i have some family members who are going through challenges right mm. now so that's mm. really kind of got a focus for me in the morning is just kind of putting out the energy that uh, awesome. they uh, will say i believe i'm a big believer of energy uh you know you, you either attract it you know your pellet you feel it as a male. We're not that good mm. at it, but I've gotten better at it because women, it's innately, they can pick it up. Mm. And so uh, right now, for example, um, you know, I think about the people that I want to do business with. I thought about you guys mm. and I thought about how this was going to go today. Mm. And so a lot of it's that it's not so much, Oh, I, you know, I, I came up with a pretty traditional uh, um, religious background. So there's, I still do my own internal prayers, you know, you've yeah. been beat into in catechism class, <laughs> but <laughs> hey, you know what? They still work, you know, yeah. whatever works for you. And so uh, that's what it looks like for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. So clearly your Remax story is a great one. Your personal story is in fat is fascinating. I've enjoyed hearing about that. Um, but I think one of the most incredible things we've heard from you recently is the story of Mimi's pantry. Can you share that with us? Oh yeah. Well, it's something that's kind of my new passion in life. Um, so, the backstory of this is my mom um, had a little deli at 72nd and uh, North Oak. And after she moved down from St. Joe, she needed to find work. And she ended up picking up this uh, little cafe is what it was. And uh, What was it called? It was called Mark's Cafe. Okay. Okay. Because that was the name prior. The the owner of that uh, 
who actually ended up becoming my boss at a grocery store. It was his son's name. Awesome. And uh, so she bought it from from him, and they uh, ran it, and she ran it for several years. And a lot of times I was a little guy, you know, probably 11 or so, uh, 12 years old, and so I was in the kitchen cleaning up or doing whatever, and I could see that she would know the backstory of a lot of these construction guys who were all laid off or people who were having challenges. She would just feed them and then wave the bill. And it kind of always made an impression on me that, you know, she had that kind of a sense about her, but also that kind of a, a heart. And so um, fast forward, I, she got me in the grocery business when I was 15. Not supposed to work till you're 16 back then because of labor laws, but she, I was about three months from being at 16. I got to become a stalker and a sacker, uh, basically to keep me out of trouble, I'm sure. <laughs> that way she, and she worked in that grocery store so she could keep an eye on me. But uh, I did that all through high school and college, and so I had an also, so I had that food background. And in the back of my mind, it's always been kind of germinating that you know, most people don't know, but mm-hmm. even in Clay and Platt County here, uh, it's two of the more prosperous counties in Missouri, like uh, Platt County, for example, is like the eighth most prosperous county. Uh, there's one out of 10 families that are food insecure. And what food insecure means is it doesn't mean they don't have food. It just means they're not sure they're going to have food because they're on such tight budgets or they're on you know, uh, government assistant that doesn't quite get you all the way through the month. So um, it's been Germany. So for about two years or three years, I've been doing a lot of research. I'm online, checking out pantries everywhere I go, food pantries, and just trying to pick up some good ideas. And I had this building over in Riverside that I had actually bought. The, the purpose of the original purpose was to buy it to put my construction guys' equipment down there for storage. You know, the maintenance guys are always stealing parts from the you know, <laughs> right. refrigerator to put in another. And they had needed all that, so I bought it for that. And then um, it just... It, it, I, I tell people now it was really divinely meant to be. When you, I, I got to get you guys over to see it, it was it was absolutely meant to be a food pantry. So we did our research, got uh, affiliated with Harvesters, became one of their uh, affiliates, and we went. My daughter, who was the two daughters, were working in the property management business. Uh, I went to the oldest one, and I told her what I was doing. I said, "You want to become the executive director of this?" She had mm-hmm. that skill set, and she has a still has a real big heart to do that. And so we started this, uh, working on it about a year ago, and we finally got it open June 1st of this year. So the one difference uh, that I like to tell people about our food pantry is that um, through my research, I found that when you have to go to a food pantry, it's not at the highest self-esteem part of your life. Mm. If you can't feed your family, that's kind of a low point in your life. So I said, we're going to change it. When people come into the Mimi's Pantry, it's going to be uplifting. They're going to be treated with high respect. And more importantly, they're going to get food, not just given to them by a box of goods of things. They're going to actually get a chance to have a personal shopper go around and you know, pick Choose items off of a shelf, just like a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And our, the signature of our food pantry is that I invested in pretty heavily in uh, refrigeration and freezer. So we can now have fresh fruits and vegetables and proteins that these families need because that's not what normally they will be able to get from a food pantry or be able to afford. That stuff is very expensive. Mm. So that's the kind of our, our differential, differential uh, point. And then, of course, my daughter was an ex-school teacher. So we ha- also found that one of the things that the, the families need like that, the kids, they don't have the money to buy school books. Supplies. They don't have the supplies. They don't have money to, to invest in, in literacy. So we have our own library down there that people can take books and not have to 
bring them back. They can check them in, check them out if they want to, but they're, they're, they're there to keep, and that's been a big hit. So we've looked at all the things that maybe uh, people mm-hmm. who are in need uh, might need, and we've tried to you know, put that into the food pantry. And not but, only that, not just skim the surface of here's some box goods, you've gone over and above to say, nope, have, have some of the fresh things that you would have going into any grocery store. Yeah, that's, that's the key incredible. is to give them things that they, the nutritional things that they Absolutely. need because it's a cycle. Once the things uh, start spinning out of control, then they start going to the convenience stores or feeding the fast food and all that. And health goes down. And health goes down. And then they, when, they, when they can't, the kids particularly, um, it, it's, it's just a bad cycle. So we're, we can't solve all the problems, but we're trying to inter- intervene into that cycle of those people that uh, have that need. Who does it serve? Like what, what kind of geography, like who, who's, what families are, are served by Mimi's Pantry? Well, when we uh, went to Harvesters, they uh, gave us uh, geographic boundaries of Clay and Platte County. So anybody who is a resident of Clay and Platte County can qualify. That's really the only qualifier. Um, and then size of your family, we came up with another concept too, and that is that's a point system. So for example, if you're a couple, you're going to get 20 points that you're twice, and you can come twice a month. A lot of pantries only allow you to come once a month. A family of four, for example, has 35 points. And what that means is like a lot of the fruits and vegetables are zero points. So, cause we really are pushing health. Mm. Uh, but we'll have all the way from that to, to, to dog food, you know, believe yeah. it or not that we have people who have animals and they, they dog food's expensive. So each category has a point system set up and then there's some limits too. You know, you can't take 10 of one cause we're trying to make sure 10 other families have the same sure. thing. So there's some of those kind of qualifiers, but um, what I'd like to tell people is this is that people say, well, how do you know who who comes to these kind of pantries? And I can tell you, it's all over the board. About mm. a third of them are seniors, and what most people don't realize is the um, SNAPS program or the old food stamp program, as we would know it, um, for the most part covers about three of the four weeks of a family's needs. So there's a week there that they need to figure out how to make things happen. And a lot of seniors come. About a third. We have a th- lot of about a third of the uh, folks who are single or you know. Mm. Just trying to, we actually, over here in Liberty, believe it or not, we have uh, one of the parole officers sending some of his uh, prolees wow. over to our pantry because they are coming out of out of the detention system with nothing. I don't know where to start. And so mm-hmm. I, we started trying to figure out where all the Libertyites were coming from. <laughs> and believe it or not, just because he'd heard about it, huh. uh, about this particular uh, pantry. And so it's, um, I tell you the one thing, it gets back to gratitude. Mm. And I talked about, you know, I think maybe this has even enhanced my attitude of gratitude, is that invariably if there's one word i would use of the recipients they are so grateful mm. and they hug you and they you know they you know praise the lord for you and they I mean, they seriously it is amazing how touched they are to have that uplifting experience one of the things that i really picked up in my research is that it's always easy it's pretty easy for all of us to become judgmental and I tell the story about myself because, you know, it's what happens. I drive up to a stop sign and I see somebody begging for food or money or whatever it might be. And I have an angel on one side of me that says, give him five bucks. And I got a devil on the other side saying, eh, that guy was here last week. It's a scam. So I have totally. this constant talk in my head. And I know everybody deals with that. So one of the things at the pantry, we said, look, we have, we have to just suspend judgment. If you're a volunteer in our pantry for no two judgment. hours, 
you suspend judgment because we have never walked in their shoes. We have no idea what's going on in their life. And I can tell you story after story of the people yeah. backstory. Once you look at them and you go, Oh my gosh, you know, you had no idea what these people are going through, but it's a, it's a feeling of dignity is what I would say that we really our our volunteers and all of us, we know we're onto something because the, the, give you some stats if you want it. Please we do. started in June 1st of this year. And uh, harvesters told us, well, till the word gets out, you probably should shoot for 25 families. We had no clue. A day, a week, a month? A month. A month. Okay. Yeah. So okay. We're, and I'll tell you about limited hours here in a minute, but it's why it is. So 25 families. Well, the first June, we had 150 families. Holy smokes. The very so, first month. Very first month. Holy smokes. Second month, we had 325 families. Just hit just shy of 400 families our third month. Yeah, I know. It's pretty amazing. And so I tell people, we're a little bit out of control, actually. But here's the challenge. The challenge is is lining up volunteers and the donations with the number of people. Uh, The only thing harvesters could tell me at the time, and and they're right now, I get it. Okay, I said, I'm kind of a budget guy. Help me figure this out. They go, "We, we can't tell you. We don't know. We can only tell you one thing. The demand is greater than you will be able to serve. Oh, man. That's what they told me. And it is, we're finding that to be true. Mm. So we're open right now. Uh, Mondays, like right today, we would be open uh, 10 to 12, mm. two hours. And then Wednesdays, four to six. And then we're open Saturday, 10 to 12. And it, when I first saw that, I told my daughter, I said, it doesn't even look like we're in business. Because I'm yeah. a business guy, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And she goes, Dad, here's the deal. Harvest is very clear t- t- teaching us, make sure that you line volume up with your volunteers because the volunteers don't want to be sitting around on their hands doing nothing. So our challenge now, and, and I talk to your listeners, I'd love to have them come over and volunteer. Is we need more volunteers. The more volunteers we can get, the more days we can open up. Because right now we're with the three days that we're open, we're pretty much hitting about 50 families a day in that wow. two-hour period because there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes people don't realize. I mean, the stocking alone and the inventory and picking up the food. And well, that was my next a lot of moving question. Parts, How you know? can we support your efforts? What, what does that well, look Well, there's like? two things. I, I used to tell, when I first started telling stories, I'd come over here to Liberty to talk to Liberty's Men Group and I'd Gladstone and North Kansas City. I'd have three stories. The story was, first, I, we're trying to get the word out. Uh, well, I can tell you the words out. Words so out. I, now, yeah. now I'm just down to two. The the, the uh, one first next one will be volunteers. It would be very. You can go to Mimi's uh, uh, Pantry org, and you can actually online volunteer, and you know you can schedule yourself if you'd like to do that. So we'd we'd love to have volunteers. Uh, obviously, the food donations are very important. I will tell you one story that's interesting that I learned is that, um, and I hope your listeners will understand this too. Most of us have given food away to our churches or through you know, uh, drives, different type of thing. And food donations are very important. and Every pantry needs those. But what I've learned as a business person is I told everybody, I'm, this is a nonprofit, but I'm going to run it like a business. Yeah. We're going to run this thing very efficiently. And what I've learned is that uh, and I always use a can of soup. If you put a can of soup in the food pantry you know, barrel or at, at your church, there's a certain psychic satisfa- satisfaction that comes out of, feeling like you've taken it and helped, you know, the, the, the cause. But if I can, as a business person, I tell business people this all the time, if I can convince you to give us that dollar instead of the can of soup, because through the leverage of harvesters and all these other connections, I get seven cans of soup. Holy cow. So when people hear this, 
the light bulb comes on. Now, we still want donations from food, too, because there's certain people who are going to give the food and not the money, and that's fantastic. But if I can get someone to get that connection, and that's so been my better. story. I mean, that's kind of been the job that I've been smart about, is telling the story of how the real world of pantries work and what we can do at Mimi's. Uh, and that's why I think the word is out. The other thing I wanted to say about Mimi's is that you know, I come from this grocery store background. I wanted some consistency. A lot of pantries and a lot of even harvesters, they're kind of at the whim of who donates what. Well, I wanted someone to be able to make sure there were proteins, that they could frozen proteins, or there was going to be fruits and vegetables, and there's going to be some consistency every time. But they could count on that being They can there. always count on, if you go to Mimi's, there's always going to be this. And so we've invested in, you know, like I say, all these coolers, frozen coolers, uh, things of that nature, so that we can do a stockpile. So when we see a deal, or we get, we've had some very generous donors mm-hmm. donate, you know, meats and frozen meats. Um, we can stockpile them, so we're not just limited to just that day's. You know, it's fascinating. Anyway, yeah, it's uh, well, the pantry's at uh, in Riverside. It's twenty two fifty five Vivian Road, and it's right there as you go off of one sixty nine into. It's on the south side of the road, and uh, we'd love to have everybody come over, uh, give you a tour, uh, volunteer. <laughs> whatever it might be. It's so good. And, and I, I just keep coming back to this concept that you, you mentioned earlier about the, the, the definition of success and how there might be these big hearted people, but they're always too broke to do anything good, right? <laughs> to have any influence. I don't, I don't mean it so bluntly. That's not how you said it, but, but I look at you and going, man, you could, you could literally do anything you want, right? In terms of travel or build other things or buy more stuff for your own kind of, um, your own pleasure, your own version of success, but you chose to to use all of this stuff that you've learned along the way to operate a nonprofit like a business. And I think I think that's fascinating because you can we can't either. But if you put yourself in the shoes of that single mom or that elderly woman or that you know struggling ex you know parole guy who's who he doesn't that's a shameful moment to have to walk into the doors of seeing someone handing you food, but then. You've built this, and I've, I've heard about it. I haven't seen it yet, but we have a mutual friend, Brian, who told me all about it. And I can't wait to get there because I'm like, man, to give these folks dignity and to make them feel like they're walking through a brand new Hy-Vee or a brand new, you know, Super Walmart or whatever, that, that, but you have to, but you're operating it like a business. I think it's a fascinating story. I love it. And, and we will absolutely push hard those two topics for you to, well, to, to I, volunteer I operate from to, a, a, what I would call a, an abundance mentality as opposed to a scarcity mentality. Yeah. I don't think there is, there's enough to go around. And, and what I have figured out also, I guess through my grocery background is that there's a lot of food out there and the food is not the problem. It's the distribution, mm. whether it be in a third world country or whatever it, it distribution is always the mm. issue. So what Mimi's is, is hopefully we're going to be a distributor, you know, to people who are in need to help them, um, Bridge that gap because really that's the key. It's just bridging that gap. It's like they're not, these are not deadbeat people. These are just yeah. people who, you know, work, good, hardworking folks who just literally just need him. Some help. My motto yeah. is families helping families. My goal, just so you know, and I want to let your listeners know, is to turn this into a community asset. This, I started it, yes, and my daughter's running it, but this is really a community mm-hmm. asset because I see this thing going on way after I'm gone, but it'll only work that way as if by that time we've got the community fully invested. Mm. And that's, that's our, that's my ultimate goal. I love it. I love it. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, shifting gears just a little bit. Um, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, 
last question I wanted to ask, if you were writing a letter to 18-year-old Dennis, what would you say to him? Well, what I, I would start off by saying that uh, relationships are more important than, than you might think when you're 18. Mm -hmm. So I tell people this. I wish I had started it sooner. Um, and I think you two are very good at this, honestly, and that is being a connector. And one way to be a connector is start your Rolodex a lot earlier. In other words, I used to you know, do really have relationships with people, but I never really got into what I would call a systematized mm. Rolodex stay in touch. And uh, some of that may sound calculating, and maybe it is, but believe me, I'm now finding out that those connections that you make and those friendships you make starting at 18 will carry you through a lifetime. That would be my first thing. That's cool. Uh, the second thing I would say to some 18-year-old Dennis is that, you know what, um, and I was actually pretty good at this, so I would talk to myself, but I would tell most 18-year-olds, listen, you can really learn from everybody. Everybody mm. has a message that you, mm. if your ears are open. Because when you're 18, you think you kind of know it all. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have a 15-year-old. <laughs> yeah. 15-year-old knows it all. She, <laughs> she cer certainly thinks so. I love it. All right, Dennis, this is super good. And we're, we're respecting your time because I know we have an hour in your day planner. So we're going to wrap up here there quick. Um, so we ask all our guests the same five questions. We call it our speed story section. So super quick, um, just first thing that pops to your mind, and we'll just alternate here real, real fast. So number one, what is the last book you read? Well, you'll be surprised at this because I'm most people when I tell them this, and I, it is the uh, complete beekeeper's manual. Whoa! Silas would love this. My uh, son wants to keep bees. So my dad was a—he wasn't really a beekeeper, but he he did uh, enough that the fire departments would call him and take a swarm of bees. And I always thought the guy was nuts. You know? <laughs> so, but some, but I do love honey, and so I do really love honey. And so my uh, goal, my my new goal is to. Um, be a beekeeper. So I've just have gotten to through my that son book. To come visit and yeah, and I've you. got some land. I'm getting ready. I'm just now to the next phase of you know. It's pretty complicated when you get into it. Oh. You know, press. I don't like to be stung, so I'm a little. <laughs> I'm being <laughs> a little more cautious. We need some video of this. this is okay. Awesome. Yeah, I will. All right. Second question: What would you do right now if you weren't afraid? Well, you know, I don't like to use that word "afraid." I because um, I believe your your thoughts manifest into reality. But I will tell you that one that still sticks in my mind, I was in um, Zimbabwe at the Victoria Falls, and I really wanted to jump off the bridge in a bungee. And I got up there, and I had this self-talk, and I, I got within about 50 feet of it, and I just Couldn't do it. I melted do it. down. So if there's a fear, that probably is still there. I mean, I mean, this we're talking into a gorge, not just one of these little things that you know. This is a <laughs> with a bouncy house, several thousand. Yeah, exactly, not a bouncy house, several thousand feet down. But uh, no, I, I, I would say most things I try to uh, break down. What I've learned is really fear, mostly, is in our own head. Absolutely. I mean, I've jumped out of airplanes and I've scuba dived and I've raced, you know, NASCARs, and I was scared to death every time. But when I got in there, it really wasn't as bad as I thought. Mm. This bungee thing's still pretty high, though, in my mind. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, number three, what is one thing that if people knew about you or knew that you did, that they would think you're crazy or weird or odd or abnormal? Something that I had done. Uh, or have done. Or a weird little tick. Do you bite your fingernails or you do anything? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I think people think I'm weird anyway. I mean, uh, most of the people just because uh, of um, you know maybe an attitude, but... Um, I don't know if I have anything that jumps out at me that would be um, 
most, I will tell you most people, I, I'm a, I love physical labor. I joke about this all huh. the time. Now this might be weird for some people. So, you know, some people look at me as a successful guy and I love manual labor. Huh. I still love to, you know, get in there and you know lift rocks and landscape and people try. I mean, I can drive skid steers. I can do all that crazy awesome. stuff. And uh, they laugh at me and dump trucks. I have a place in Montana and I was last week, two weeks ago now, I have a rock crusher up there. So a buddy and I are up there crushing rock and, and laying, laying rock on this road. And so people are like, are you nuts? That's <laughs> so, awesome. So I, a lot of people think that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite place on earth? Oh, without a doubt, uh, it, it would be Africa. I'm drawn mm-hmm. to Africa for a lot of different reasons. But, uh, you know, people, I have traveled just about everywhere in the world. But, uh, and my wife feels the same way. We so something, have a heart for Africa. something special about uh, Africa. You know, I, my family's from Ireland, so I wouldn't normally have said when I went to Ireland, I will tell people this, it's interesting. When the first time I went to Ireland, I felt I was home. Huh. You know, when people say that, you know, I never got it. I got it. I mean, mm. when you finally go back to your roots, there's something amazing there, but I would still put Africa as my number one place in the world. I love it. All right, last one. When it's all said and done, what do you want people to remember you for? Well, uh, you know, there's two things. I I would hope that they... Uh, I was a, a, I call it a servant leadership. I would hope that I would, people would know that I was hopefully serving the best I could, whether it was a, in a business role or a, a family role. And, um, you know, in a, hopefully in a, in, a, uh, in a humble way, but a very grateful way. That's awesome. So good. Man, Dennis, we're super grateful for your time. I mean, just blown away by your insights and your generosity. And, and we're, we're expressing our gratitude in return. Yes. Thank you, guys. It's been fun. Uh, and, be, and, it's and really be, fun to be here. Oh, so good. And before we end, tell us again, where can people find out about Mimi's Pantry? Yeah, so uh, if you go to their website, it'd be uh, mimispantrykc.org. And it'd be so M-I-M-I-S, pantrykc.org. And you can go online and uh, you can, if you're so inclined, you can donate. It's pretty easy to donate money there. We'll take any $10, $100, 1000 whatever you want to throw in there. And um, the other... Uh, thing is the volunteers it uh, would be it's i'll tell you what I, I stress this volunteerism because when you do it you get so much more than mm. what you give it's more than you can even imagine when you see the gratitude in these people mm. it's uh, it's addictive it really is a very addictive so i'd encourage people to if not even mimi's pantry uh, to go do something like that because it's pretty special it's awesome yeah. love it so dennis thanks so much thank you guys Thanks, y'all. We really appreciate you listening today. I know you have a ton of places where you can give your attention, so it means the world to us. If you'd be so kind, please give us a review and subscribe to the show. That would be super awesome. And a big thanks to Dennis Curtin, region owner of Remax and founder of Mimi's Pantry. His story is such a powerful one. Until the next show, let your life tell a great story. Thanks for listening.